Cheat Sheet, I'm Sinjin Flynn. And I'm Eric Skelly. And this time we're talking about Giuseppe Verdi's Macbeth, which debuted originally in 1847 in Florence and was then revised and reappeared in 1865 in Paris. Right. A comedy. <laughs> Not. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> it's based on the Shakespeare, of course, with whom uh, Verdi was very much enamored, revered the uh, the Bard's works, and this was the uh, the first attempt that he made to translate Shakespeare to the um, musical theater stage. Where does this fall in his career? This uh, falls at the tail end of his early period, after you know, his huge success with Nabucco early on, he had what he called the galley years where he was really sort of churning them out. Oftentimes, you know, they're still of very much of interest. Even substandard Verdi is, <laughs> is very worthwhile. But uh, there were a whole, he was very prolific in that period. But this is sort of the tail end of the early period where we're getting Ernani uh, and works like uh, Macbeth that are pointing the way toward the middle period, which begins with Rigoletto. Uh, and we'll see that, you know, in this opera, we'll see where he's just about to cross that line over and in, into in, in uh, taking opera in a, in a new direction, but, you know, making changes from within. Today, there are the, the, the two versions, the, the 1847 and the 1865. Which of those is most performed today? Nobody does the earlier one. <laughs> because the, the changes that he made in 1865 were of, of such uh, great improvement. Uh, for instance, Lady Macbeth's aria, La Luce Langue, which is a real touchstone in the development of that character throughout the opera. You basically have somebody who, in the beginning, is all fire and, and ambition, and we hear in her first aria, her first cavatina cabaletta combination, that she's just... You know, she is just all about ambition and pushing on to uh, do whatever they have to do to, to become successful, ruthless in her ambition. get to La Luce Langue, which is sort of mid-period through this piece, and we see that she's, uh, she's basically being eaten from the inside with guilt. And she's got one foot in the other world and one foot in this one, and she's toggling back and forth between them in this aria. It's really brilliantly constructed. And then when we last see her in the opera, we see, of course, the famous sleepwalking scene, and she's all but dead. You know, there's almost nothing there. She's a hollow shell of a woman barely hanging on to life. And in fact, some people say that she is the central character in the opera. Yeah, they both are, aren't they? I mean, they really are. It's a study of contrasts on, on how conscience and guilt works upon them. In the beginning, she's the one of the two spurring him on. He's he's the one that sort of almost shrinks reticent. away a little bit and yeah. reticent to to do what they're about to do, the, the, the heinous th crimes they're about to commit. And she's the one that pushes him to do it and then goes behind him 
and <laughs> and uh, you know plants the dagger that he was supposed to plant to 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 uh, kill Duncan. To well, well, he's already killed Duncan, but they want to frame the guards for the murder, and he forgot. <laughs> he was so he comes distraught. out with the dagger. Right. He's so distraught, and she's the one that has the presence of mind to oh, give me the dagger, and she goes in and does it herself. And you know, but then as the opera moves on. He becomes harder and harder and colder and colder and more and more reconciled to committing these heinous crimes while she's the one that's eaten from within with guilt. So Act One starts as the play does. The witches on the heath. Right. Yeah. But we don't just have the three witches here. No, we, we have a whole lot of witches. <laughs> three groups of them, actually. And they have that encounter with Macbeth and Banco, as he's called in the opera, yeah. Banquo. Banquo, we, uh, we, we know him as. And the witches hail Macbeth as Thane of Glams, Thane of Cawdor, and King Hereafter. Yes. And then, of course, the prophecy about Banquo is that uh, he will be the progenitor of a line of future kings. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's the standard. It's what we get in the play. Exactly. In taking Shakespeare's play and sort of whittling it down. Yeah, they have to condense it. They have to. And he worked with with Piave. Who would later be his librettist for La Traviata. What is it that is maintained and what is let go? Well, I mean, they have to let go of some extraneous characters and extraneous scenes, and they have to pare it down to just, you know, about the Macbeths and, uh, to a lesser extent, Banquo and Macduff. I mean, Duncan... (laughs) He doesn't even speak. Right. He, he just parades in and they kill him. You know, <laughs> they really, really reduce that part down. So it, it has to be. It has to be pretty spare. Scene two of Act One, we're in Macbeth's castle, right? And Lady Macbeth is reading the letter from her husband, telling of the encounter with the witches. Right, and she does. She does read it. She doesn't sing it. She reads the letter. Nel di della Vittoria begins the letter. And she ends it, um, he en- or he ends it, and she reads it, and she says, Racuso in cor questo segreto, lock this secret in your heart, goodbye. And then she begins singing, Ambizioso spirito tu sei Macbetto, you are an ambitious spirit, Macbeth. And she launches into this big cabaletta, uh, Vieni ta fretta, where she calls upon him, in, in general, because he's not there, but she calls upon him to steal himself, and the, the, the crown is there for the taking. Take it. And after she ends the cabaletta, uh, a messenger comes in and says that he's there. Macbeth has arrived. And then she sings this cabaletta. And this is, this is the old bel canto dual aria format where you've got the cabatina that shows a singer's long line and uh, ability to sing you know, this beautiful line of, uh, of bel canto song. And then it's followed up immediately by cabaletta, which is a fast aria that shows their versatility and their, their coloratura. All of this, mind you, in a part, this, this Lady Macbeth, is a, it's a voice wrecker. I mean, this, this role has, you know, more voices have been wrecked on the shoals of this role because it requires so much of the singer. All this bel canto 
technique, and yet they need a stentorian voice. In fact, Verdi even said that he wanted it to be ugly. Don't be afraid to make an ugly sound because she's, you know, she's an ugly. She's not a nice person. She's not a nice lady. (laughs) She's really not. So So there aren't many sopranos that would actually tackle this. No. uh, In fact, sopranos and mezzo-sopranos often do it. Dramatic mezzo-sopranos like Shirley Verrett and Krista Ludwig. uh, Dolores Zajic, I think, has done it. So dramatic sopranos or mezzos, it's called a a zwischenfach is the German term. It can be done by either sopranos or mezzos. So the cabaletta is Ortuti Sorgete Ministri Infernali. calling upon all the ministers of hell <laughs> to, um, you know, come gather here and, and uh, screw their courage to the sticking point and help them to do this heinous thing that they're about to do. Because they've received word that Duncan, the king, is going to arrive and will spend the night in their castle. Exactly. With his retinue. And she's just gotten the idea that since... You know, she's read in the letter that Macbeth is prophesied to be king, and the current king is about to spend the night in the castle. Well, let's help this prophecy along, (laughs) shall we? (laughs) And in fact, the scene ends with the murder of Duncan. Yes. And Macbeth does his, is this a dagger I see before me? And as you said, he comes out of Duncan's room without having left the the dagger in there so that the guards could be accused, etc. And Lady Macbeth has to go back in and finish what he had started. Yeah, and I, we have to also give notice or give, give attention to the duet that the two of them sing when he arrives and they're planning to do this murder. exciting duet and it sort of points the way we were talking before about this pointing to the way toward the middle period this is pointing the way you've got this really agitated figure in the orchestration beneath them and it's really it gets faster and faster and and, you know because their hearts are beating so fast and the two of them are you know he'll say something he'll, he'll jump in and she'll jump in and they're singing the melody but what's going to happen in the middle period is Verdi's just going to put the melody entirely in the orchestra and let the voices just sort of talk and counterpoint over it. So this is sort of leading in that direction. But it's a really exciting and it just it, – I mean your heart is pounding listening to this thing if it's, if it's really done well. How does that duet start? The duet begins with uh, the line Fatal Mieronga and it's, uh, it's, it's creepy but it's exciting because it's done kind of – kind of sotto voce in a, in a way because they're, they're hushed, they're, they're kind of whispering to one another. So the scene ends with Macduff and Banco discovering the murder of Duncan and the chorus calls on, on God to avenge the killing of the king. 
with the Macbeths leading the way. They're all, they both come out in their night clothes and they're just feigning horror along with everybody else. And she's, you know, she's pinging out big giant high notes over everybody else, you know, wailing their the despair at the murder of the king. End of Act One. Mm-hmm. Act Two, Macbeth is now king, which means that Lady Macbeth is now queen. Yes. But all is not well between them. <laughs> well, Malcolm, Duncan's son, they, they've managed to make it seem like Malcolm was the one that killed his father. Mm. Malcolm has fled. He's fled to England. And Macbeth is still perturbed by the witch's prophecy, mm. knowing that Banquo's descendants will be kings. Right. So, as you said, all is not well because now that they've done away with Duncan, that's not the end of their problems. Not at all. In not fact, at all. it's the start. Yes. And she comes upon Macbeth and she says, why do you, why do you flee me? Why are you, why are you avoiding me? So there's, there's, there's a rift between them that's beginning here. You know, and, he, and he says to her, he says, you know, he's, he, as you say, he's worried about the prophecy. And this is where he says... I'm going to have Banquo and Fleance killed. Yeah. He says to her, they do not have eternal life. And she says, you're right, they don't. And this is where she sings La Luce Langue. Yeah, he, he leaves and she sings this aria, La Luce Langue, which is one of the additions that Verdi made when he revised it in 1865, was it? And this is an important midway point in the character's development because – you know, in the Cavaletta and Cavatina that we heard in the first act for her, where, she, where we were introduced to her, she's bold and she's ambitious and she's ruthless. And she's, you know, she's full of life. Dark, <laughs> but she's full of life. Here, this aria shows her sort of in transition. What's interesting is that she's in transition. She's going from sort of being outrageous external to more internal and he's going the other way in the other direction because he was so horrified at her suggestion of killing the king he was reticent and she's the one that spurred him on to do it and now he's like well we've got to get rid of banquo and flounce yeah and she's okay (laughs) (laughs) but her conscience is working upon her it's eating her alive from the inside out. She's got one foot in the next world, and, and she's tenuously holding on to the other foot in this world. And this aria shows her toggling between the two. She, she begins the aria La Luce Langue, and she's sort of in this sort of dreamy state and far off, and you know, the light is waning, and, and then she snaps out of it and says, nah, these murders, they were necessary, they were necessary. And then she goes back into this sort of contemplative state where she's sort of there but not there. Just, okay, snap out of it, snap out of it. This is something that was necessary. And, you know, so she's back and forth between these these two states. And this is going to be significant when we see her at the very last, when she's completely, almost almost out of this world altogether. When she's from the inside out. 
She's sleepwalking. Her mind has finally turned then. Completely. And this is a sort of the transitional part. Yes. Scene two of Act Two is outside the castle. It's the attempt to capture and murder Banquo and Flails. His and son. Mm-hmm. Banquo is captured and murdered, but Flails is able to escape. Yes. There's the rub, because, of course, Banquo's descendants can still, that prophecy could still be fulfilled because Fléance is still alive. Exactly. The third scene of Act Two is the banquet scene. Which is the, uh, yeah, it's the setting for one of Lady Macbeth's most difficult pieces of music. She has this brindisi to sing as she leads everybody in a drinking song. Call my calice. Uh, Fill up the cup. Yes, is is how she begins it, and it's full of, oh, it's full of coloratura, uh, but she has to sing it full voice, you know, and really, you know, that stentorian style that Lady Macbeth has. So she's leading everybody in this big drinking song, and meanwhile, the assassins that Macbeth sent out to kill Banquo and, Banquo and Fleance come in and tell him they they got Banquo, but. They didn't get flayons. Not so much flayons. <laughs> <laughs> and this does not set well with Macbeth. So the second time that Lady Macbeth starts up the Brindisi, he interrupts her and he has an episode. He starts to think that he sees the ghost of Banquo, Banquo. popping up in the middle of this banquet. And he freaks out. And she has to stop and run over and, you know, snap him out of it. And she says, you know, she says to him in a, in a, in a hushed aside, she says, Vergogna, Signor, for shame, shame on you. You're making a spectacle of yourself. Pull it together, dude. <laughs> and Macduff is watching all of this and realizes that all is not well with the Macbeths. All is not well with the kingdom because they're going crazy. Yeah, because it happens again. It happens twice. You know, she she starts again, tries to lead everybody in the in the in the drinking song to distract them from her spasmo husband, <laughs> <laughs> and he goes off again. He sees he sees the ghost of Banquo. He thinks and freaks out again. Macduff decides that it's time for him to leave the country as well. End of Act Two. Yes. Act Three. We are back in the witch's cave. Mm. Macbeth just cannot leave well enough alone. (laughs) He's come back for more. He goes back because he wants to hear more. He wants to find out because Fleance has escaped. Macduff has gone and he's actually warned. He's advised to beware of Macduff. One of the witches tells him that he cannot be harmed by a man born of woman. Right. And the third little escape clause there. (laughs) And the third, which says that he cannot be conquered till Burnham Wood marches against him. But then he's shown the descendants of Banquo, and they are the future kings of Scotland, verifying the original prophecy. So, of course, he goes looking for answers, 
but comes away with more questions. Mm, exactly. And he has an episode. He collapses and he sings Fuji Rega Fantasima, Begone Royal Phantom that reminds me of Banquo. <laughs> Banquo just will not go away. Back in the castle, he again tells Lady Macbeth of the encounter with the witches. And what do they have to do? Kill some more people? That's right. (laughs) (laughs) So now they've got to do Fleance, Macduff and his family. Yeah. End of Act 3. Act 4, we are at the border of England and Scotland. Malcolm, Duncan's son, has put together an army to invade Scotland with the object of, of taking back the crown. And Macduff has joined that army and has been informed that his wife and children were murdered at Macbeth's order. reacts in the aria alla paterna mano and he laments the fact that his his children died without even having the comfort of, of their father to be there with them. Malcolm tells each soldier to cut a branch from one of the trees in the wood, in Burnham Wood. Burnham Wood. <laughs> and to carry it as they advance to attack Macbeth's army. They're going to liberate Scotland from tyranny. Scene two... We're back at the castle, and this is the famous sleepwalking scene. Oh, boy. Which is, is her mad scene, isn't it? It is a mad scene, and it is a tour de force for the soprano or mezzo who sings it because as mad scenes do it takes her all over the map histrionically and ends <laughs> ends all you mezzos out there who are thinking about taking this part it ends with a pianissimo floated D flat above high C <laughs> don't try that at home kids and she has this big aria una macchia e qui totoro and this is where she's gone over the edge completely she is all but dead at this point. She's uh, apparently been doing this every night, and her guilt has hollowed her out. It's eaten her alive from the inside. There's very little left in this world. And in fact, we'll find out in the next scene that she has in fact died. We come into the final scene, scene three, and we're back on the battlefield. But Beth knows that the Scottish rebels are advancing toward him. That's Malcolm Macduff with the, uh, the English army. But he's still clinging to that prophecy that he cannot be harmed by a man born of woman. Yeah. He has an aria, Pietà rispetto amore, where he reflects upon just, you know, what's gotten him to this point <laughs> in his life uh, before he's called into battle. 
in the course of the battle, he finds himself face to face with none other than Macduff. And he, he hurls a challenge at Macduff and says, I cannot be killed by any man born of woman. And Macduff retorts, well, I was, <laughs> from my mother's womb, I was untimely ripped. ripped. So cesarean section. <laughs> and it's the final, it's the final nail, really, because prior to that, Burnham Macbeth moved. Well, Burnham would <laughs> moved and Macbeth learns that Lady Macbeth has died. So he's on his own now. Pretty much. And he knows that the world is against him, that everybody hates him. Yes. They fear him. There is no love for him. He has lost everything. everything. And now with this revelation that Macduff was born through a C-section, yeah, that's the uh, that's it. That's it. There's no going Game back. Game over. Yep. <laughs> and uh, in fact, Macduff kills Macbeth, and then Malcolm becomes king, and they all live happily ever after. There's general rejoicing. <laughs> so, in terms of Verdi's adaptation of Shakespeare, we've got the three. We've got Macbeth, we've got Othello, and we've got Falstaff. How does this compare to the other two? The other two are his final operas, and they are the sort of the apotheosis. How close does this come, Macbeth, to being up there with Othello and Falstaff? Well, it has its it has moments where it does it does reach those heights, uh, particularly in the characterizations of Lord and Lady Macbeth. That's what really makes this opera fascinating and thrilling, is watching those character developments throughout. It's not a perfect opera because it's still early on in Verdi's uh, career. I think the consensus is that it, regarding Verdi's Shakespeare operas, Macbeth is, is fascinating, but it's in terms of uh, an achievement, an artistic achievement, it's not quite as good as the Shakespeare play. Othello is very much on a par with Shakespeare's Othello. And in Falstaff, he actually created something even greater than Shakespeare's Merry Wives of Windsor. But this is a good start. Oh, it's a great start. Giuseppe Verdi's Macbeth. That's this week's Opera Cheat Sheet. I'm Sinjin Flynn. And I'm Eric Skelly. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.